0: The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. So here we are in our waning hours of this session, And it seems like the trees have just started to turn all of a sudden. So continuing with uh, Atisha's practice slogans. Seeing confusion as the four kayas is unsurpassable shunyata protection. Maybe this is one of the more esoteric of these practice phrases. There is confusion that arises from within samsara that manifests samsara. And then there is a sense of confusion that arises from within the Dharma path. These are quite different. If confusion is a lack of understanding or having, feeling uncertain or bewildered, mistaking something for something else. That when we're confused, we're confused within a perspective, a view. We're not bereft of that. But that is not helping us in that moment. It's not skillful. Maybe it's not in accord with what's true. And samsara is said to be living in an ongoing state of, of very strong sort of overpowering emotions, and a state of bewilderment. Existing alone, not seeing how profoundly codependent it is. We see something that we take or experience as pleasurable, but actually it's suffering. We see something that in its nature is fleeting and momentary, but we experience it or believe it to be something permanent. and I added that we can have a glimpse of a path and think that it's irrelevant. (laughs) Trela Khyabgan says, Confusion doesn't only include negative emotions, doesn't only exist within negative emotions, but also exists within positive emotions. For even those are often laced with ulterior motives or expectations, hidden agendas. He said, there's no need to concern ourselves, condemn ourselves rather, but just see that our emotional responses are mixed. And it's a good point. This comes up a lot with regards to the precepts, where students often, in really engaging them, beginning to practice them and wanting to live that life of a bodhisattva, experiences moments where action is needed and they're not clear on the, the motives of their actions. They're not clear on whether they're really coming from a, a good intention, whether they're coming from a place that's clear, that's more selfless and generous, or whether there's a hidden agenda, an ulterior motive. And that's true, it's completely legitimate. We're just not clear yet in those moments. It's mixed. And so we need to do the best we can and step forward and take responsibility for whatever negative consequences that might bring, and learn, become more clear. And I think that also, within even our attachments, or particularly our attachments, which, you know, have a binding and sort of negative aspect or consequence, that there's almost always something good in them that we're seeking but that gets turned upside down, distorted, goes wayward within our confusion. If ultimately every living creature, every human being's impulse is towards an affirmation of life and to move away from what's destructive of life, then when we are creating something that's destructive, if we look carefully, will we find some deep impulse, some deep desire for something that is actually affirming of life, but is just in a state of bewilderment? And what these teachings are pointing to is that, and Dogen speaks about this all throughout his teachings, it's, it's you know, very much a Mahayana perspective, but it's also, in a way, a very, we might say, highly developed aspect of mahayana teachings is that however things appear even if we're experiencing it within our confusion that that thing that we're experiencing is not separate from its true reality it's not distorted it's not confused the confusion is in our mind the more we really look at that and the implications of that about the nature of mind and consciousness and things and, and codependent arising, it's sort of, you know, from my completely unbiased perspective, <laughs> it's just like, how can you not sit? How, how can zazen not be the necessary um, response once we begin to see how, into our confusion, and that how are we going to get this clear? How are we going to become clear? How are we going to realize that we're dreaming from within the middle of a dream? How are we going to see through an open eye when our eyes are closed? Each thing is true unto itself. A flower is just a flower. A tree is just a tree. A flower to itself is not a flower, it doesn't have a need for a name. A tree is not a type of plant, it is its own complete reality. A bomb is just a bomb. Whether something is, has been designed with bad intentions or was created with good intentions is, is, is being used badly, each and everything exists within its own reality. So then the question is, where is the confusion? What is our perception? And what happens when we bring our confusion to an object, a person, a situation, a relationship? When Dogen says mountains don't lack the characteristics of mountains, they're always abiding in ease and always walking, always manifesting themselves in their dharma state. And so that's why he says we should really examine that, how it manifests, how it appears, which really means how we are perceiving it. And confusion, too, is just like this. So, <laughs> you know, to practice on the path of enlightenment, we have to become quite skilled in delusion, right? Right? Of course, we would like to just avoid all of that and just leap right across that little chasm into the land across the other shore and not be bothered with that. But that's because they are non-dual. That's a fantasy. And so we have to actually become quite clear about delusion. In a sense, that's what enlightenment is, is illuminating Delusion. So when Dogen says to study the is to study the self, does he mean the deluded self? Does he mean the enlightened self? Does he mean the karmic self? Are they different? It's like being lost in the forest. When we're lost in the forest, and if you've ever been lost in the woods, I have. Lost in relationship to where I think I am, or I want to be, Where I need to be. And my confusion is, I don't know. I don't know if I am where I need to be, where I am hoping to be, where I am aiming to be. And so that becomes uh, a a panicky situation. I've told the story before as I was bushwhacking, I was hiking in the Rockies many, many years ago. I was very young. Well, I was. uh, my early twenties, yeah, pretty young, <laughs> and uh, and I didn't know that territory at all. Didn't know that land, but I, you know, done a fair amount of camping, so I was, sort of knew enough to be reckless and dangerous <laughs> to myself. So I hitchhiked out of town, and just at a certain point, just said, "Let me off here," and I just jumped over a farmer's fence and just walked into the mountains. And I had a compass, and I was, you know, tracking my route so that I could come back out. And I climbed up to the top of this mountain. The sun was setting. It was gorgeous. I put down my pack. I thought, I'm just going to go watch the sunset for a little bit. Then I'll come and set up. And I went, and it was gorgeous. And I was just like, this is beautiful. And then I came back, and I couldn't find my pack. I'd come back right to where the pack was supposed to be, and it wasn't there. And so I thought, oh, I probably went a little bit too far to the left. And so I corrected that. It wasn't there. Oh, maybe it was the other direction, so I went over there. It wasn't there. And within a minute or two, I was running as the sun was setting, as it was getting cooler, as I was confused and lost. I was in a panic. Right? I eventually found my pack. and But I learned, it, it showed me what I had read about, that usually what what really ruins people, what messes people up in the woods is not their situation, but their mind. And I gave myself a vivid, <laughs> ready, ready-to-eat um, experience of that. It was humbling. It was very humbling, which is exactly what I needed. But in the, in the moment when we're lost or confused, the body's not lost when we're confused being in the woods, the woods are not lost. They're not confused. We are always right here. And confusion without a path, I mentioned this last night, can be very lonely and distressing because then there can be the sense of being truly lost. Lost in no sense of what finding our way might be because there isn't a way being confused from within the path, is normal. <laughs> I would even say is necessary. It's a door into not knowing, it's a door into discovering how to let go of control, how to read the signs, how to understand that state in its truer form. So, in a way, there, there inevitably will be periods of confusion. In practice. I would say if there haven't been, then we're we haven't stepped in enough. Judy Leaf says that in everyday experience, it's hard to pin down exactly what is happening and why. When we begin to try and figure things out, it seems like there's always something, a gap, some slippage, she says. Things begin to make sense, but then not quite. So they almost come together, but not quite. We keep trying to chip away at our confusion to straighten it out, to get rid of it. Imagine ourselves somehow coming out on the other side into a non confused state where everything is workable. But this slogan is saying that rather than trying to get rid of it, what we need to do is to examine it. And in doing so, we transform not the confusion, but our view of it. And in transforming the view of it, the confusion changes. It's not the same. You know, it's one of the reasons why, if confusion is inevitable within the path, <clears throat> that sort of a good situation is when you find yourself in a state of confusion within the Dharma path, within training, right? Because then you have refuge. You have ways of, of not straightening that confusion out, but a way of sort of holding Yourself in a way, being held within that confusion, in a way that can be extremely important and powerful. I think one of the ways that that happens is that when, when we're confused, and we might feel like, you know, we're the one, everybody else is just sailing smoothly along, but <laughs> we're confused, and we can be very distressed about that. And other people, particularly teachers, seniors, are not distressed. They don't see that necessarily as a a negative, as something that needs to be gotten rid of. That can be very helpful. And so to (coughs) see this confusion as the four kāyas in unsurpassable shunyata protection. So the kāyas, are the bodies of the Buddha. And traditionally there's the Dharmakaya, which is the body of reality, your fundamental true nature, when we see into the self-nature. In Japanese, Kensho or Satori is having realization, direct experience of self-nature, your original face, before your parents were born, Mo, the one hand of Hakuin. That's realizing the Dharmakaya, it's getting at least a glimpse of the Dharmakaya, this this characteristic-less body, this body that has no form. It's the formless body. That's our basic nature. That's the nature of all things. When the mind is not projecting and creating and imagining and proliferating ourselves into being. And then there's the sambhogakaya, which is the reward body. And one of the things that can be challenging about these is the different times within one tradition, sometimes differently across traditions. Sambhogakaya is the enlightened beings' enjoyment of their enlightenment. It's all of the rewards, the fruits of their enlightenment. And there's both that enjoyment that they're benefiting from, but also that others can benefit from by coming into contact with them. And then the nirmanakaya, which is the manifestation body. So the Buddha is said to have been, have shown up in this world as Shakyamuni Buddha. That was his nirmanakaya. That was the way he showed up in the world as this human being, this individual Shakyamuni, so that he could teach. In relationship to these teachings, these are presented in a slightly different way or just given us sort of a different understanding. And so, uh, Judy Leaf says that every perception begins with uncertainty and openness. She points to this is the Dharmakaya, that it begins not in anything fixed and certain, but in a kind of spaciousness. That that's how every perception begins, arises from a state that is formless, unformed, and that's the Dharmakaya. Pema Chodron says that in that, those perceptions have no birthplace. You know, that's why you can't see, observe a thought being formed. Because it's formed in the moment when mind, as a sense sense organ, and consciousness comes into contact with thought. They happen at the same moment. A thought that can't pre-exist in that way. Otherwise, it would be independent and self-existing. So the moment when it comes into being is the moment that we can perceive it. And then it begins to develop energy, or it starts to come into focus, it starts to coalesce into something, and that's spoken of as the namanakaya. It appears, but it's not clear yet, and then it becomes more radiant, more clear, clear, clarified, and that's the sambhogakaya. And then the fourth kai here is the svabhavikakaya. I'm going to say that once. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's the um, unified body. That's where all of these different bodies come together in, this, in the present moment of experience. A mountain is complete in all of its characteristics. Abiding it is. <clears throat> now, how do we think about all of this? Right? How is this helpful? One way I've thought of it is, how do we? um, So, if we think about the relative and the absolute, so we have this relative body, this karmic body, our our body, our you know facial features, our height, our weight, our you know all the stuff that helps us to recognize and identify ourselves as ourselves and each other as each other. And then everything within that body, our thoughts and emotions, histories and so on, our sensations, every, every perceivable thing, <clears throat> is all within our, our sensory organs, within our cognitions, the relative body. And then there's the absolute, <clears throat> the underlying basis, which is free of those characteristics, but from which all of those characteristics arise. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. But if we think about the body of practice, the body of awakening, this body, the body that is sitting on your cushion, how do we sort of think about all of these different aspects? And how, can they, how do they relate to each other? How can they be integrated? Are we all of these different things? And so to think about that reality body as the fundamental nature, that's the ocean that reaches in all directions and is, in a sense, characterized by having no distinct characteristic. It's just all one nature. And that as we practice, we experience, we have experiences, right? Before practice, we've been having experiences. Some of them are good. A lot of them aren't so great. We call that dukkha as we begin to practice, the, the ordinary, in a sense, the natural consequences of practice begin to manifest. The mind begins to settle, the body is more at ease, the energy flows more naturally, things become more unified, our grasping, sort of grasping habit begins to relax and soften, we begin to have more understanding, and so on. And then when we realize this dharmakaya that is the basis of everything from the beginning, then we we realize that we are manifesting in this form as nirmanakaya. And that those three bodies are not, cannot be separate. They're all just different ways of looking or thinking about or reflecting on or relating to the experiences of one thing. That's why that image of the money gem, right, this exquisite jewel that has all of these facets cut into it, and that when you look through any facet, it gives you a particular path in, you're looking through a particular door, and so in a sense you're looking at one thing, but you're seeing it from different perspectives. You know, a lot of the teachings, particularly, following the Buddha's life were, it seems to me, um, and I think sometimes explicitly stated, are, are needing to sort of explain the underlying basis of things to help us understand and make sense of the experiences that we have. And so that the teachings have to always be in accord with our actual experience of things. If they're not, then they would be considered to be invalid. You see? So they have to actually corroborate our experience, both within delusion and within enlightenment. And so I think of a teaching like this, these four chiases, as a way of helping us to understand or reflect on and um, you know these different aspects. And how they integrate, how they're unified. I was talking to a student recently who was in a had been going through a very difficult, very difficult period of time in which there were some very distressing changes taking place in their life. Um, and they were really struggling with the the sort of sharp edge of impermanence, you know of not being in control of things of of not being able to hold on to what this person so desperately wanted not to change. And, um, and wanted to know, because everything is in point, impermanent, what's the point? What's the point of all of this? If when you have something that is good, you're going to lose it, what's the point of it then? And I said, because it's impermanent. Everything is possible. Things are possible within that recognition of what we cannot control. That's the reality of the Buddha Dharma. That it's based in reality. It has to match the world as it actually occurs, which means things happen. The thing that you most not wanted to happen just happened. The thing that you wanted to most ensure would continue doesn't. The thing that you most wanted to avoid just showed up on your doorstep. Because everything is impermanent, all of the good is in an ever-changing state, so don't grasp at it. All of the difficult is in an ever-changing state, so don't despair. Now, Let's work within that real edge of impermanence, so that it's not something to be feared or or try to beat, but rather to be, in a way, celebrated, rejoiced. The next slogan is, the four practices are the best methods. So, because everything is impermanent, in a sense, there is no point to get to, there is no place that you can arrive at and keep. It is always an open door. The door is always open. Another way of saying that is just, there ain't no door. (laughs) That is shunyata protection. The protection of things because not being fixed means for the one who has a path, you can work within that non-fixedness together. Now we can work with our mind. We can work with our desires. We can work with our energy. We can work with each other. We can work with suffering rather than against. And so we need practices to do that. And so the four practices are the best method in the next slogan. And, of course, there are many different sort of combinations of practices, qualities, virtues that are put forth in the, in the teachings. Right? And each of them has their own their own wisdom. And so here, the first is to accumulate merit. So now, uh, Judy says the conventional act of merits is, is, is such as protecting good deeds, revering sacred images and texts, dharma dharma texts, Buddhist texts, and supporting the sangha are encouraged here as a way to disrupt egotism. Not to build a holy persona that is even worse than normal egomania. <laughs> Dr. Roshi used to talk a lot about the stink of Zen. Right? That when somebody becomes very sort of... Um, well, stinky is a good way of thinking of it. You know? <laughs> has, an, has an aroma, right? Of dharma, you know, of righteousness, of, you know, perfection, of whatever, um, that, that there's no encouragement in that. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? Because we're reifying something, in particular ourselves, and in particular as someone who is a little bit higher. And so merit is, is practicing these uh, good deeds, these good actions, generally related to the Dharma, building monasteries, translating texts, um, helping people to ordain, supporting the Dharma in any way, brings merit. And there's a very deep, there's a very deep part of the tradition that isn't so strong in in much of Western Buddhism, I think perhaps particularly in the Zen tradition. I remember talking to a well-known Tibetan Buddhist teacher years ago. We were on a at a conference together, and we were just you know talking shop. And she was mentioning how at their uh, monastery some years ago they had decided to stop asking for fees for any of their programs and just letting it be completely in the hands of the sangha that was coming forward. And I and I said wow. Okay, how, how'd that work? And she said, oh, very good. And she said, because, of course, people understand that by giving Donna, they're accumulating merit, right, which will help to ensure a, a more positive rebirth and help them along the path of enlightenment. And I said, I'm not sure how that would work back where I come from. <laughs> Not that there's not much generosity, but that particular motivation. But Trillac Keabgon talks about this in a way that I thought was interesting. He says, the notion of merit refers to psycho-spiritual dispositional properties. <laughs> so dispositional properties that arise out of our disposition, that we have inclination towards, that are of the realm of our th- consciousness, the right, our, let's say our psychology, our sort of mental, emotional, physical person, and our spiritual being. And then he goes on to talk about how important it is. He says, this doesn't only refer to the psychological dispositions that form our character traits, but also to a form of spiritual competence that is hard to convey. He said, much of the difficulty in translating this term comes from the fact that we can't use theistic language to translate Buddhist concepts. And so I was really reading into that and thinking about how I've always felt that in in listening to Um, teachers from countries where merit is very well understood, right, and has been for hundreds of years, I always had a sense that there's an understanding of merit that is sort of built in not only to Buddhism but to the culture that is sort of just implicitly understood and has sort of a, a nuance or a range of meanings that would be, I'm assuming, understood. You know? And so as Westerners it's like trying to to come into that. You know, how does that work? And so, um, and how, do we, how is that spoken about in, in Western concept, Western terms, to try and convey that? He says, this is quite unfortunate because the Buddhist concept, such as merit, has a very strong spiritual dimension. The whole concept of merit works something like this. Great merit enables us to avert obstacles and prevent adversity a sufficient amount of which enables us um, to do that, and, and very little merit will not help us to do that. Just as a, having a weak, a, a sort of a vulnerable, you know, uh, immune-deficient body, for, for instance, will attract illness. And so accumulating merit in this sense is to, to d- direct energies, very conscious energies, towards those things that will help develop not the dharma, but dharma practice, dharma practitioners. And that in that, because the dharma is, from the point of view of the dharma, the ultimate medicine, the ultimate way in which we can help ourselves and help each other. Because it, it's not, you know, like a medicine, is designed to address a specific illness. And so we have to take different medicines for different illnesses. The Dharma is designed to treat every illness, every form of dukkha, every form of, of unhappiness, disease. The next is to lay down harmful deeds, so I was thinking of Atonement, the Goth of Atonement that we did last night. Judy says, it's not enough, you don't need to be heavy-handed or guilt-ridden about this. Just get to the point of wanting, of being tired of your own sort of obsessive neurotic qualities, loops, patterns, embarrassed and fed up enough that we want to do something about it. And this is actually very important because our attachments enchant us, right? That's why they're attachments. They seduce us. They they allure. They have an allure. And as long as that's still there, they will still entice us in in certain moments. That's how... that's our vulnerability. The more grounded we become, the more mindfulness we have, the more uh, understanding we have, then that decreases and becomes less and less until really it gets to a point where the sort of the negative aspects of those desires really are just not that interesting anymore. They're not appealing. And so to get to the point where we're kind of tired of ourselves, weary of these patterns, now we're really ready to let go. They will continue, (laughs) but now we're ready at least. We don't get so seduced. But it's not enough to just not do something that's harmful, right? or to take responsibility. We have to lay it down. That is, we have to make our peace. That if we want to be on this path of non-attachment, of non-accumulating, we have to deal with our accumulations. If we want to put an end to suffering, we have to deal skillfully with the ways in which we are continuing to create suffering in the present moment, often about things that are quite of the past. Pema Chodron says that this is an honest and joyful self-reflection. Honest because we are taking responsibility, and we have to take honest responsibility. We have to be willing to see the consequences of our actions without filters, right? Without trying to get off the hook, without trying to deny or blame. But just see it. Acknowledge it. Take responsibility for it. And joyful... Why is that joyful? Because it's honest. Because it's taking place within a path. Because we're no longer trying to escape. And that's a wonderful thing. It is a cause for joy. We begin to feel our own capacity, really what we might call our own spiritual power, to not only transform our lives in the present, but actually to transform the past. And because karma is not a cosmic thing, it's not a universal law or truth, we don't have to wait for anything. It functions within our consciousness. It's our business. And so when we give it energy, we get energy. When we give it strength, we gain strength. And that can seem very counterintuitive from the outside. It's like, no, 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 I don't want to go there. I don't want to go close to that. I don't want to take responsibility because then I'll be overwhelmed with... And we may. And so that's what we practice. Because that's just a moment that is arising and passing. Think about all of the harmful deeds that we as a country have not atoned for have not laid down because we have not atoned for. And we will not lay them down until we atone. And as long as that is true, the consequences of that, not just those past actions, but the not taking responsibility in the present, will continue to manifest. You know, we can't outsmart reality. <laughs> you know, It's like we can't outsmart death. You know? We, it, it, nobody's ever done that. And so it's better just to, to face it. Because that we can do. And the third is to make offerings to evil spirits. Judy says these evil spirits are like sudden attacks of our neurosis that seem to come from nowhere. Like a sudden burst. That they're Pema says, they're wake-up calls, everything seems fine, and then, bam, there it is. And whatever the source, whether it's our own creation, whether it's coming from somewhere else, someone else, whether it makes sense or whether it doesn't, whether it's, you know, arising out of just or an unjust action, once it is in our consciousness, not only is it our responsibility, but that is our chance, that is our time, right? In which we will ever we will either, influenced by that, create more harmful deeds that need to be laid down, or we will transform that. And so rather than fighting or avoiding, we have to get to know intimately our delusion, our kleshas, our thought patterns, this particular body and the way it manifests, our reactivity, the whole, you know, supermarket of me and you. (laughs) And so we make offerings to, so recognizing, um, making offerings to the evil spirits so that we're, you know, we're not trying to kill them, not trying to banish them to some distant country, because where are you going to put that part of yourself? But rather that we make room, we have to show some respect, not in the sense of uh, perpetuating, but in the sense of treating ourselves respectfully, treating that aspect of our karma respectfully, because karma is pretty smart. And the patterns that we have created, in a way, are quite smart particularly given that most of them, so many of them were created when we were just little things, young'uns, right? And didn't know so much about the world, didn't have many resources to turn to right? And so we just figure it out. You just figure out a way to make sense of something that doesn't make sense, how to survive a difficult situation, how to create some sense of order in 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 a world of chaos, Right? I mean, just you know seeing my own and just seeing the various ways in people that have have learned to be in the world that they were born into and grew up in it's amazing, really, the capacity that our mind has to seek life, but it gets turned upside down, it becomes that habit, it becomes that disposition, it becomes something that we don't understand, and so it's hard to know why does this keep happening. And so we make offerings to those, and then to the Dharma protectors, which often show up in wrathful forms, and that represent those defenders of, of the Dharma, of the of Buddhism, of monasteries, of practitioners, right, from external and internal dangers. And that historically those were often drawn from local deities, which is kind of nice. you know, take, take a local deity, that it already has a presence, people are already familiar with it, and now just give it a job. Okay you have a new job, and it's way important. <laughs> and we're counting on you, right? And we will make offerings, right? So we have this thing going here. And we don't really have much of that these days, right? who are our, who are our local deities, movie stars, oligarchs. And so these protectors, when we do the Hakurasan service, we dedicate it to the peace of this temple and the strength and sound practice of its sangha, to the guardians of its buildings and grounds, to all protectors of the Dharma. Well, who are those protectors? You should want to know. Who are they? Could it be someone you know? <laughs> and I was reading about Benzaiten, because we do chant the Benzaiten Jinshu, which was one of the Dharanis. And Benzaiten was a, literally the goddess of eloquence. And a Japanese Buddhist goddess who originated from a Hindu goddess of speech and the arts and learning, and is sort of merged with a, a Hindu, another Hindu goddess, which is a warrior. So it's kind of a, a very powerful combination, right? The arts and literature and, and all that is beautiful and the warrior, right? Because it's a protector. It needs to be a protector. And so she is the protectress, right, of the Dharma. <clears throat> How do we protect the Dharma? really what we are talking about. How do we protect dharma practice? How do we protect places of dharma practice? How do we protect all of the wonderful sort of abundance of dharma food that has come down to us in all of its many forms, so that we can encounter the dharma? And so the slogan is saying we should make offerings. We should have this in our mind. We should understand that we have a, we're in a dependent relationship. We need help, right? We used to do the akursan service. akursan is a white dragon, our protector, our protector deities. We used to do that once a week during Ango. And during non-Angos, we wouldn't do it. And then during the pandemic, we started doing it every day. And there have been other periods of times where we've done it more regularly when... I remember there was a period where there were like two or three staff car wrecks in a row. And I said, OK, let's start doing a on <laughs> 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 And so we've been doing it every day, not during session, but during the regular week. And it was like, I'm not going to stop doing that. <laughs> <clears throat> and this is how we protect the dharma. By making it strong within ourselves. By giving it life. By giving it life with, between ourselves, within the sangha. So that those who come here feel, experience, in a visceral way, in a felt-sense way, in a way in which intimate language communicates, they experience something when they walk into this space, when they walk into this building, when they're on these grounds, that they may or may not be aware of, that they may not understand, but I am convinced that is felt. And that comes from a, a, a joint effort all of us are involved in. And in that way, our practice, individually, collectively during this week, is so much larger than our own practice, than just this week of training. It's like a commitment to caring. It's a commitment to a joyful generosity. It's, like a, it's a commitment to wanting to make sure that, that as grateful as we may be at having encountered this path, that don't we want other people to have that joy? And so let's Make our offerings. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.